Chapter Five of the Confessions of a Poacher, edited by John Watson, Fellow of the Linnean Society. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hair poaching. The merry brown hares came leaping over the crest of the hill, where the clover and corn lay sleeping under the moonlight still. Our hare season generally began with partridge poaching, so that the coming of the hunter's moon was always an interesting autumnal event. By its aid, the first big bag of the season was made. When a field is sown down, which it is intended to bring back to grass, clover is invariably sown with the grain. This springs between the corn stalks and by the time the golden sheaves are carried, has swathed the stubble with mantling green. This, before all others, is the crop which hares love. Poaching is one of the fine arts, and the man who would succeed must be a specialist. If he has sufficient strength to refrain from general melching, he will succeed best by selecting one particular kind of game and directing his whole knowledge of woodcraft against it. In spring and summer I was wont to closely scan the fields, and as in brown September drew near, knew the whereabouts of every hare in the parish, not only the field where it lay, but the very clump of rushes in which was its form. As Puss went away from the gorse, or raced down the turnip rig, I took in every twist and double down to the minutest detail. Then I scanned the smoots and gates through which she passed, and was always careful to approach these laterally. I left no trace of hand nor print of foot, nor disturbed the rough herbage. Late afternoon brought me home, and upon the hearth the wires and nets were spread for inspection. When all was ready, and the dogs whined impatiently to be gone, I would strike right into the heart of the land and away from the high road. Mention of the dogs brings me to my fastest friends. Without them, poaching for fur would be almost impossible. I invariably used bitches, and as success depended almost wholly upon them, I was bound to keep only the best. Lurchers take long to train, but when perfected are invaluable. I have had, maybe, a dozen dogs in all, the best being the result of a pure cross between greyhound and sheepdog. In night work, silence is essential to success, and such dogs never bark. They have the good nose of the one and the speed of the other. In selecting puppies, it is best to choose rough-coated ones, as they are better able to stand the exposure of cold, rough nights. Shades of brown and fawn are preferable for colour, 
as these best assimilate to the duns and browns of the fields and woods. The process of training would take long to describe, but it is wonderful how soon the dog takes on the habits of its master. They soon learn to slink along by hedge and ditch, and but rarely shoe in the open. They know every field cut and bypath for miles, and are as much aware as their masters that county constables have a nasty habit of loitering about unfrequented lanes at daybreak. The difficulty lies not so much in obtaining game as in getting it home safely. But for all that, I was but rarely surprised with game upon me in this way. Disused buildings, stacks, and dry ditches are made to contain the hall until it can be sent for, an office which I usually got some of the field women to perform for me. Failing these, country carriers and early morning milk carts were useful. When I was night poaching, it was important that I should have the earliest intimation of the approach of a possible enemy, and to secure this, the dogs were always trained to run on a few hundred yards in advance. A well-trained lurcher is almost infallible in detecting a foe, and upon meeting one, he runs back to his master under the cover of the far side of a fence. When the dog came back to me in this way, I lost not a second in accepting the shelter of the nearest hedge or deepest ditch, till the danger was past. If suddenly surprised and without means of hiding, myself and the dog would make off in different directions. Then there were times when it was inconvenient that we should know each other, and upon such occasions the dogs would not recognise me, even upon the strongest provocation. My best lurchers knew as much of the habits of game as I did. According to the class of land to be worked, they were aware whether hares, partridges, or rabbits were to constitute the game for the night. They judged to a nicety the speed at which a hare should be driven to make a snare effective, and acted accordingly. At night, the piercing scream of a netted hare can be heard to a great distance, and no sound sooner puts the keeper on the alert. Consequently, when Puss puts her neck into a wire or madly jumps into a gate net, the dog is on her in an instant and quickly stops her piteous squeal. In field netting rabbits, lurchers are equally quick seeming quite to appreciate the danger of noise. Once only have I heard a lurcher give mouth. Ruff was a powerful, deep-chested bitch, but upon one occasion she failed to jump a stiff stone fence with a nine-pound hair in her mouth. She did not bark, however, until she had several times failed at the fence and when she thought her whereabouts were unknown. Hares and partridges 
invariably squat on the fallow or in the stubble when alarmed and remain absolutely still till the danger is past this act is much more likely to be observed by the dog than its master and in such cases the lurchers gently rubbed my shins to apprise me of the fact then i moved more cautiously outlying pheasants rabbits in the clumps red grouse on the heather the old dog missed none of them every movement was noted and each came to the capacious pocket in turn the only serious fights i ever had were when keepers threatened to shoot the dogs this was a serious matter lurchers take long to train and a keeper's summary proceeding often stops a whole winter's work as the best dogs cannot easily be replaced many a one of our craft would as soon as have been shot himself as seen his dog destroyed and there are few good dogs which have not at one time or other been riddled with pellets during their lawless save the mark career if a hare happens to be seen the dog sometimes works it so cleverly as to chop it in its form and both hares and rabbits are not unfrequently snapped up without being run at all in fact depredations in fur would be exceedingly limited without the aid of dogs and one country squire saved his ground game for a season by buying my best brace of lurchers at a very fancy price while upon another occasion a bench of magistrates demanded to see the dogs of whose doings they had heard so much in short my lurchers at night embodied all my senses whilst preparing my nets and wires the dogs would whine impatiently to be gone soon their ears were pricked out on the track though until told to leave they stuck doggedly to heel soon the darkness would blot out even the forms of surrounding objects and our movements were made more cautiously a couple of snares are set in gaps in an old thorn fence not more than a yard apart these are delicately manipulated as we know from previous knowledge that the hare will take one of them the black dog is sent over the younger fawn bitch staying behind the former slinks slowly down the field sticking close to the cover of a fence running at right angles to the one in which the wires are set i have arranged that the wind shall blow from the dog and across to the hare's seat when the former shall come opposite the ruse acts puss is alarmed but not terrified she gets up and goes quietly away for the hedge the dog is crouched anxiously watching she is making right for the snare though something must be added to her speed to make the wire effective as the dog closes in i wait bowed with hands on knees still as death for her coming 
I hear the brush of the grass, the trip, 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 as the herbage is brushed. There is a rustle among the dead leaves, a desperate rush, a momentary squeal, and the wire has tightened round her throat. Again we trudge silently along the lane, but soon stop to listen. Then we disperse, but to any onlooker would seem to have dissolved. This dry ditch is capacious, and its dead herbage tall and tangled. A heavy foot, with regular beat, approaches along the road, and dies slowly away in the distance. Hares love green cornstalks, and a field of young wheat is at hand. I spread a net, twelve feet by six, at the gate, and at a sign the dogs depart different ways. Their paths soon converge, for the night is torn by a piteous cry, the road is enveloped in a cloud of dust, and in the midst of the confusion the dogs dash over the fence. They must have found their game near the middle of the field, and driven the hares, for there are two, so hard that they carried the net right before them. Every struggle wraps another mesh about them, and, in a moment, their screams are quieted. By a quick movement, I wrap the long net about my arm, and, taking the noiseless sword, get hastily away from the spot. In March, when hares are pairing, four or five may frequently be found together in one field. Although wild, they seem to lose much of their natural timidity, and during this month I usually reaped a rich harvest. I was always careful to set my wires and snares on the side opposite to that from which the game would come, for this reason, that hares approach any place through which they are about to pass in a zigzag manner. They come on, playing and frisking, stopping now and then to nibble the herbage. Then they canter, making wide leaps at right angles to their path, and sit listening upon their haunches. A freshly impressed footmark, the scent of dog or man, almost invariably turns them back. Of course, these traces are certain to be left if the snare be set on the near side of the gate or fence, and then a hare will refuse to take it, even when hard-pressed. Now here is a wrinkle to any keeper who cares to accept it. Where poaching is prevalent and hares abundant, every hare on the estate should be netted, for it is a fact well known to every poacher versed in his craft that an escaped hare that has once been netted can never be retaken. The process, however, will effectually frighten a small percentage of hares off the land altogether. The human scent left at gaps and gateways by ploughmen, shepherds and mouchers, the wary poacher will obliterate by driving sheep over the spot before he begins operations. On the sides of fells and uplands, hares are difficult to kill. 
This can only be accomplished by swift dogs, which are taken above the game. Puss is made to run downhill, when, from her peculiar formation, she goes at a disadvantage. Audacity almost invariably stands the poacher in good stead. Here is an actual incident. I knew of a certain field of young wheat in which was several hares, a fact observed during the day. This was hard by the keeper's cottage and surrounded by a high fence of loose stones. It will be seen that the situation was somewhat critical, but that night my nets were set at the gates through which the hares always made. To drive them, the dog was to range the field, entering it at a point furthest away from the gate. I bent my back in the road a yard from the wall to aid the dog. It retired, took a mighty spring, and barely touching my shoulders, bounded over the fence. The risk was justified by the haul, for that night I bagged nine good hares. Owing to the scarcity of game, hare poaching is now hardly worth following, and I believe that what is known as the Ground Game Act is mainly responsible for this. A country justice, who has often been my friend when I was sadly in need of one, asked me why I thought the Hares and Rabbits Act had made both kinds of fur scarcer. I told him that the hare would become abundant again if it were not beset by so many enemies. Since 1880, it has had no protection, and the numbers have gone down amazingly. A shy and timid animal, it is worried through every month of the year. It does not burrow, and has not the protection of the rabbit. Although the colour of its fur resembles that of the dead grass and herbage among which it lies, yet it starts from its form at the approach of danger, and from its size makes an easy mark. It is not unfrequently chopped by sheepdogs, and in certain months hundreds of leverets perish in this way. Hares are destroyed wholesale during the mowing of the grass and the reaping of the corn. For a time in summer, leverets especially seek this kind of cover, and farmers and farm labourers kill numbers with dog and gun, and this at a time when they are quite unfit for food. In addition to these causes of scarcity, there are others well known to sportsmen. When harriers hunt late in the season, as they invariably do nowadays, many leverets are chopped, and for every hare that goes away, three are killed in the manner indicated. At least, that is my experience while melching in the wake of the hounds. When hunting continues through March, master and huntsman assert that this havoc is necessary in order to kill off superabundant jack hares and so preserve the balance of stock. 
Doubtless there was reason in this argument before the present scarcity, but now there is none. March, too, is a general breeding month, and the hunting of doe hares entails the grossest cruelty. Coursing is confined within no fixed limits, and is prolonged far too late in the season. What has been said of hunting applies to coursing, and these things sportsmen can remedy if they wish. There is more unwritten law in connection with British field sports than any other pastime, but obviously it might be added to with advantage. If something is not done, the hare will assuredly become extinct. To prevent this, a close time is, in the opinion of those best versed in woodcraft, absolutely necessary. The dates between which the hare would best be protected are the 1st of March and the 1st of August. Then we would gain all round. The recent relaxation of the law has done something to encourage poaching, and poachers now find pretexts for being on or about land, which before were of no avail. And to the moucher, accurate observation by day is one of the essentials to success. Naturalists ought to know best, but there has been more unnatural history written concerning hares than any other British animal. It is said to produce two young ones at birth, but observant poachers know that from three to five leverets are not unfrequently found. Then it is stated that hares breed twice or at most thrice a year. Anyone, however, who has daily observed their habits knows that there are but few months in which leverets are not born. In mild winters, Young ones are found in January and February, whilst in March they have become common. They may be seen right on through summer and autumn, and last December I saw a brace of leverets a month old. Does, shot in October, are sometimes found to be giving milk, and in November old hares are not unfrequently noticed in the same patch of cover. These facts would seem to point to the conclusion that the hare propagates its species almost the whole year round, a startling piece of evidence to the older naturalists. Add to this that hares pair when a year old, that gestation lasts only 30 days, and it will be seen what a possibly prolific animal the hare may be. The young are born covered with fur, and after a month leave their mother to seek their own subsistence. End of chapter 5